is an European Public Service Union podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of EPSU Podcasts. My name is Bojan Stanislavski. I am the host of this show. And today, uh, my co-host will be my colleague from Romania, Maria Cernat. Uh, she is a Romanian academic and a journalist with The Barricade. Hello, Maria. Welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time to co-host this edition with me. Hello. Thank you for having me, Boyan. Well, it's a pleasure. Right. And Paola Panzeri. She's our special guest. She is the, uh, she's EPSU's Policy Officer for Equality and ETUC's Women's Committee uh, Vice President. Now, I want to add that EPSU stands for European Public Services Union and uh, ETUC stands for European uh, Trade Union Confederation. Welcome to the show, Paola. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Boyan, for the invitation. Thank you, Maria. And um, my pleasure to be here today. Okay, so let's start with uh, the date, 25th of November. Now, uh, it's, it, might, uh, it might actually be a little surprising for some that unions are mobilizing on that day uh, because this particular date is not linked in any concrete and specific manner to the history of the labor movement. Uh, nonetheless, it is an uh, important day. Uh, it's, an, it's the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. And uh, I'd like to invite you, Paula, to elaborate a little bit on why is this important? Why are unions organizing and mobilizing on that day? And despite them doing that and other things in terms of women's uh, position in the labor movement and so on and so forth, they still have the reputation of you know, organizations rather neglecting that sort of, uh, this kind of, of issues and, and, and problems. Please go ahead, Paula. Thank you. Well, there will be a number of reasons that I would say why the unions uh, are and mobilizing on on today's uh, today's day. Uh, I think the first and most important thing is like women make half of the population. So, and women are victims and survivors of violence in their daily life. They also make uh, a big chunk of the workers, and especially when we think about public services and public service workers, we have a number um, of sectors where women are make the majority of the workers. I can think of the care sector, the social services, the public administration at local level, but also at national level, um, the health sector, where women make a, a, a huge number of the workers there. But also, let me reply with a question. Uh, if I would say, if I would ask you, where do you think out of the um, out of the own home, where do you think, let me read it for you, it's a fundamental uh, right agency survey on violence against women in the European Union. Where is the place where the most serious incidents of violence by a non-partner happened? If I would say the workplace or uh, open space, open open space like a park or a public transport or uh, a public park. Where do you? Where would you say that happens the most? Right, Maria, you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think um, uh, especially in the workplace and especially in places where uh, the profession is male dominated, like uh, the army, the police. And usually, uh, where 
as I said, uh, there are male-dominated professions, and this is where the violence against women occurs. Do you want to try your luck, Boyan, or can I give you uh, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I hope that would be an educated guess, but uh, I, I suppose it might also depend on a, on, on a concrete and specific country or region, maybe. Uh, but uh, let's say in Eastern Europe, for example, where I'm, you know, where I have experience from, bitter experience mostly, uh, I would say that, uh, yeah, it's exactly, I mean, I would repeat after, after, Maria, that definitely, uh, you know, the army, uh, uniformed services in general, where women are a minority, and, uh, you know, even by this quantitative uh, aspect, they are on a weaker position. And also, I mean, these jobs are normally filled with violence, all kinds of, so I, I, I presume it attracts, uh, like, violence even outside, you know, uh, outside the framework where it's needed, uh, because I understand that police sometimes has to apply violence or the army. But uh, yeah, so that's, that, that would be number one. And number two would be uh, probably uh, open spaces, but open spaces in the sense that like concerts maybe, where there are crowds of people, where they are anonymous, uh, maybe that kind, of, that kind of events where this would happen. That's my, my speculation. Okay, if I take this survey, and again, it's a survey done by the Fundamental Rights Agency, uh, I start from your last. So if I choose the option um, crowded places, now cafe, restaurant, pub, club, or disco, the European average is 8%. So only 8% is the place where the most serious incident of violence by a non-partner happened. If you want, I can give you Bulgaria's 4%. Uh, if I look at workplace, that's 16%. Uh, but does it, it mean the 16%? It means that 16% out of 100% of women have experienced violence in this particular of venue or place. 16% of the respondents say, uh, yeah, yeah, when yeah. asked where is the yeah. most important uh, incident, they would say, for 16% would say workplace. For, did I say, no, 8% said in a pub, disco, cafe, restaurant, and 18% said um, in an park, um, let me read the exact, in the street, a square, parking lot, or other public space, which in the opinion on everything and, and on everybody, and even myself, was thinking like, you know, public space is the most dangerous. You might have seen some of the um, uh, some of the revendications done by feminist group in some of the cities. Like I live in Brussels. Uh, I'm Italian, but I've been living in Brussels for quite a long time now. And uh, in my neighborhood, uh, at some point for the um, for the, I think it was last year in, for the 25th of November, actually, women sprayed on the street. Like, um, I have been harassed here. Like, they really went and spray and wrote on the on tagged streets and, and, and sidewalks and squares to say, hey, here, in this place, that where you're walking now, that's a place where I've been harassed, which makes it more visible. It's always not visible enough, but makes it more visible. Well, that's only 2% higher than actually what happened on the workplace. Because on the workplace, there is a number of uh, incidents of violence that we would think only intra-office violence or intra-workplace violence, colleague to colleague or hierarchy-based. But also what we're, um, we're trying also to expose this year, you might have seen that we released um, a press release today 
which is on third-party violence, um, saying gender-based violence uh, is a workplace matter, and we're talking about third-party violence. What is it? It's the violence that is provoked by someone that is not a colleague. Let me do an example. Uh, if I am a nurse, uh, it's a violence done by a patient or a family member of a patient, for example. Mm -hmm. If I work in the municipal office, I do... Uh, in a, in the in a, in a in a context from desk worker in the municipal office, those are the the, the citizens or the residents of that municipality that comes in. They are verbally violent. They are um, sometimes physically violent. We just had a, a seminar on this where we actually learned some experiences in cities where they designed offices so that the worker had a way to escape without passing in front of the person that might be provoking yeah, that. I, I just want to say, I, I'm sorry for interjecting, but I can't, uh, you know, but notice that this speaks to the state of the statehood of whatever country you're referring to right now, where the civil servants have to have special routes to escape when a citizen comes to fix whatever they need, like documents or whatever official formality. I mean, this is something pretty stunning, even from that point of view, let alone the question of harassment and violence. It's uh, it, it's scary, though, that you have an, a real spike of violence. And with COVID pandemic, you have an increase of service delivery online. So you also added the all online violence, online harassment, psychological and psychosocial risks that increased uh, for workers and for female workers and it is still a fact that despite both men and women being um, victims and survivors of third-party violence that is still a very gendered problem you can still see that many more women are affected many more women workers are affected by these incidents of violence than men and it is I, I could go on for hours, so I can... Right, I right. Well, before you do go, actually go uh, uh, go any further, I'd like to invite Maria. Maria, could you please just, you know, reflect on that? I mean, the question of the uh, workplace harassment, uh, because normally workplace harassment is something that people associate with uh, the structures of power, right? Like there is someone above you who has more power, who's more powerful, more wealthy, more secure, and so on and so forth. And he would, you know... Uh, uh, enforce himself on, I don't know, other women, colleagues, whatever. This is how people, you know, understand it. At least that's my uh, kind of sense of how. But obviously there are some more subtle and, and more, uh, I don't know how to call it, sophisticated maybe ways of how this violence actually occurs, how it happens. And uh, I know that you have a lot of, uh, I mean, your part of your academic background is actually this. I mean, not violence particularly, but the position of women in society and so on and so forth. And you also had, uh, have had, uh, you know, an extensive career, so to say, in, in, in academy where you, uh, where you, where, uh, where you worked with uh, the history of Romanian feminism. So perhaps, you know, this, this is going to be an interesting take on, on, on this, what was just presented by Paola. Well, Usually, as I told you, human uh, feminists in the second wave, after they gained the right to vote and the right to own property and the right to divorce, uh, the workplace was the new battlefield. And it was very important, especially in the Western countries, to gain 
votes to gain rights that might seem today elementary, like the in 1955, as I, as I recall correctly, in Great Britain was voted in a law preventing owners of businesses from firing women just for getting married. Prior to that, if a woman got married then, she might have had uh, the owner who just fired her because she got married. So that's very problematic, to say the least. And then in 1965, just imagine, so a very late point in our history, the Equal Pay Act was adopted in Great Britain, preventing owner of businesses for paying more for the same amount of work. You should have seen the men sending letters being so concerned that now women are going to be free. And now why are they paying these women the same amount of money? Because they are not obliged by the society to support the family. If you look at the um, history of the working class women, especially in uh, the Western part of the world, this is a very interesting one. Also, I I could talk for hours because uh, I studied in detail a book related to programmers, actually, because the first programmers were women. Little I mean, no, uh, there is not an information that uh, you would consider to be true. Uh, If I were to say to you that the first programmers were women and once the men came in, the profession gained popularity and more money were invested in uh, salaries. They are considered more like secretaries and treated very badly. So when a profession was done by the women, the salaries were low when it was done by the men, the salaries suddenly got up. And exactly the same thing happened with psychotherapy. Uh, When it was male-dominated, it had a lot of popularity and the social standing was extraordinary. Uh, When it was female-dominated, the salaries started to go down and also the social status of it lost its glamour. Now, in terms of violence, as I told you, there are differences between working class women, because usually in the male-dominated professions like the military and the police, uh, the female experience the most male uh, violence, because usually sexual violence is a tool to make women obedient and to make them stay out. And also, unfortunately, especially in the military institutions, they care more about the image than they care about their fighters. There were extraordinary violent incidents taking place, for instance, in the U.S. military, and this is why they created even uh, an organization called Defend Our Defenders, because uh, the women working there were left on their own devices, and uh, there was no possibility, and I don't know what's the situation, but usually in the army, they want to keep things quiet. So especially in Romania, if I am to think about it, no rape in 30 years was um, was reported in the Romanian uh, army. Do you really believe that's yeah. the case? Do you really yeah, believe that's really the yeah. case? Now, uh, of course, this goes underreported, and especially women face violence in this particular field. They also face viol- uh, violence, as Paola so 
rightfully said, from third party. Because why? Because if you're a man, it's easier to beat up a woman. That's easy. So exercising violence toward a weaker person seems at hand. And also because that speaks to the culture of violence that encourages, normalizes, and um, left unpunished things like this. So you have the culture working against you. You have a, a the physical strength working against you. So you're a sitting duck, basically. If you're a female um, nurse or if you're a female working in public administration and you have to deal with very angry clients. And you also have the capitalist system working against you because I'm telling you what happened in Romania. In public administration, especially in Bucharest, they started firing people and it was more and more work done by less and less people and mostly women were the ones that were at the desk and were in direct uh, contact with the public. So you can imagine that this is the perfect uh, context. Perfect storm, yeah. and, and obviously this this is just like provoking violence. It's like inviting it because obviously it provokes like situations which are unbearable by both sides. So yeah, but let's try and break it down now by, by, by the trade union kind of angle. So uh, when did trade unions, and I'd like to go to you, Paola, uh, when did trade unions start to, um, uh, to make it official that they actually care about this, uh, this corpus of problems as well? Well, if you ask me a date, I have to be very honest with you. I don't have a date, but as yeah, far sure. well, as like, I remember myself... Whether it was like this century, the century before, or whether it was like, you know, 10, 30, 50 years, but that kind I of thing. I think what's, what's important is the fact that this is fully recognized as a trade union issue, and it's fully embraced by the trade union movement in Europe, the one I know the best, uh, as a problem where trade unions have... A role to play, and here I want to I want to, to say a couple of things that came came to my mind while uh, Maria was speaking. Is my own country, Italy, until 1981 had a um, a criminal offence uh, called um, a honor crime. So basically, if you were killing someone to repair your honor, so you were killing a sister, a daughter, a woman of your family to repair your honor. That was How do you less- repair your honor by killing someone just. <laughs> That's a very good question. I would have like if you need, to, if you need to kill now. someone to experience closure, you should go to a psychiatrist. I think. That's, but anyway, uh, really. until until 1981, that was uh, considered less problematic than okay. killing someone else. Sure. So there you go. How much the structure of power? The, how much the structure of what Maria exactly said? It's a question of women being if you allow me to stretch it, second-class citizens, women to be not only weaker. um, We had a member of the European Parliament a few years ago saying women have smaller brains. But it's... uh, It was Polish, by the way. It was. It was. It was. was. Uh, So, but the question is really the power structure, how men do feel allowed to exert power, to exert their power via violence towards women, just because that's the way the world is. And unless we educate and we change and realize that violence is everywhere and is a cause and a consequence of this way of thinking, we can't we can't break the cycle. And and also one way that I think uh, the unions are mobilizing, which I think it's quite interesting, is externally 
but also internally. The ETUC has one, the PSI and EPSU have another code of conduct to say this is a place, say, a safe place. It is a zero tolerance to violence in our events, in our meetings. So if a person uh, denounces, if a woman denounces uh, an incident of violence, there is a procedure to be followed to make sure that that woman is safe, that the procedure is looked at, and there is no, there is a reduce of the risk also of violence via this code of conduct. Also, I think it's an important point because we do not only take into account protection of workers in the sense that are attacked from the outside or what you will said inside the organization, but it's also a question of creating a safe space for everyone at the workplace because the workplace is also a place to escape um, for those uh, victims of domestic violence, for, for example. So if you think of the COVID pandemic and the increase of telework, how many victims, how many women living with their, with their violent uh, partner have actually been stuck in, those, in their homes with their violent partners? And going to, this, to the workplace, going to work, sometimes is the only allowed possibility to, to go out of the house, to be without that violent partner. And you, if, if you don't make the workplace a safe environment for everyone, and if you don't uh, support those victims also by training and equipping the trade union delegates to support, to detect violence, to support, to redirect those people towards those organizations or towards those uh, possibilities given the information that these people can need to also break that spiral, you might just perpetrate again and again a vicious spiral instead of breaking breaking the the, the cycle and moving away from the from the uh, from the environment which is violent and um, and and not the perfect environment to to live in and work with. Right. Okay. Well, that's that, that sounds pretty interesting. I mean, I've got quite a few questions about that, but uh, perhaps this is not the program where I want to ask them. I, I, I where I should be asking them. But, but uh, Maria, uh, like, it's I just heard Paula saying quite explicitly that you know the unions recognize the problem, and I'm not quite sure they actually do. I mean, those in your like, I'm, when we're talking about the ETUC, which is a major, you know, labor. Confederation, international, and so on and so forth, which is, uh, you know, with, with, with leadership that obviously is in, in step with all the new trends and, and uh, you know, is, is somehow educated in this respect as well, then yeah, totally. But I can quite well remember when I used to be an active person, uh, you know, a labor activist, so to say, in Poland, I quite well remember that, you know, when I traveled with my, uh, you know, union fellows to, to the West, then, you know, the kind of the... the, the uh, the behavior even our men displayed sometimes was embarrassing because it was obviously breaching certain norms that were already, uh, you know, in place in the West. So I'm wondering whether anything has changed over the last, I don't know, decade or two maybe, because this is more or less the amount that has passed since I used to be that labor activist that I mentioned. So what, what, what's your experience with you? Well, I would say that usually... Uh, the relation between feminism and labor movement was a difficult one. Even though the women were at the forefront of the revolutionary movements, if we think of the Bolshevik Revolution and all the revolutions that started uh, a century ago, 
what happened in the Western part of the world, unfortunately, with feminism and the labor movement was not always a very harmonious relation. And when they started going, for instance, there is an incident uh, that Julie Bindel, the famous uh, writer, journalist, and um, activist is talking about, and other. It is also documented in a documentary produced by Mary Dorr in uh, 2014. Uh, Because feminists in uh, the 70s wanted to address uh, the labor movement and wanted to discuss uh, their situation with the men gathered at some point, that was the incident took place, I think in the United States, they wanted to discuss and the men started yelling horrible slurs at them. And the situation was quite difficult, of course, of course, there were um, excellent are you, giving, are you giving that example because you feel it's typical for the history of uh, the kind of it's difficult not. relationship between well, the labor no, movement I'm and the I'm going to give a positive example, which Yaya Ben Desai was a migrant woman from um, India working at the Grunswick uh, film editing uh, studios. They were treated horrible. They were forced to work at 40 degrees Celsius with the windows and the doors shot by a um, very cruel manager and they started that they went on strike even they were they were the most vulnerable workers in great britain this happened in 1978 at that point they were the most marginalized uh, workers uh, women migrants and people of color so they had all this um, all these things working against them but still it was the postman, the union of the postman that was heavily dominated by men and the miners, the the union of the miners that, needless to say, it was heavily dominated by men that came somehow to the rescue and they fought together. And even though the strike was eventually broken and it was broken through a very... Uh, very violent uh, police behavior, but uh, this is a moment of, uh, you know, when gender barriers didn't count and class solidarity was more important. This is a very vivid uh, expression that it can be done. But the I told you, the relation between feminists and the labor movement was not always as smooth as it seems now. And coming back to your coming back to your question, unfortunately in Romania, feminism, even though we have a socialist uh, feminist like Sofia Nadezhda that I often talk about, uh, an exceptional uh, thinker and writer and journalist and activist writing in the 19th century. Despite that, uh, communists in Romania believe that uh, feminism is bourgeois and it has to be banned. So unfortunately, there were no talk about gender violence, domestic violence. There were there was a lot of support for women because childcare was socialized. There were free maternity leave and all sorts of support system, but the gender roles were never questioned. And in terms of the labor uh, movement in Romania, because most of the major uh, labor movement uh, most of the unions are those that were formed prior to 1989. Unfortunately, they got the same 
mentality. And um, I don't know if uh, they have like this uh, very sophisticated uh, things like Committee for Gender Rights and uh, Gender Balance. Well, but even if they have it, the question is whether it's doing its job, right? So that's the... Or yeah, whether well, women were allowed in it. But the last thing here, also the feminists, I would say, in Romania have a, a duty here because right now in Romania, unfortunately, feminism is very elitist. It's very elitist. It's uh, urban, middle class, privileged women that are feminists. So there are like a couple of hundreds in an optimistic evaluation a couple of thousands of feminists in the whole Romania a country of 20 million people and they are mostly uh, localized in major university cities so well yeah I guess that's a problem but you know because we're approaching the end of our pro program and and there are so many questions that we could go on and on I mean both of you said that you uh, you could go for hours about certain topics and I, I'm sure that we will just have to repeat that I mean we'll have to record another episode just to continue this conversation, because I think that uh, it's definitely uh, worth it. And, uh, you know, the question of how the labor movement uh, supports, well, women in their, in the solution of, uh, of, of those, you know, slew of problems, really, that uh, they encounter in terms of their position in society. But, you know, for, uh, for the closing remarks, I'd like to invite you, Paula, uh, to please explain uh, how are actually unions mobilized? What are those unions doing, uh, like the ETUC Women's Committee, for example, or, you know, you as an EPSU officer, what do you do? Like, not technically every day, but in general, like, what projects do you invest your efforts in, and so on and so forth, so that, you know, our our readers, our, uh, sorry, our viewers and our listeners, they get a sense of what the unions are actually doing, and what's the way to go, perhaps for some unions from our region, mine and Maria's, to an, an example to follow. Well, um, as said, we can do a spin-off here. We will not necessarily need only a second episode, probably. But right. <laughs> but it's also a question of having women in the room. So how many of those women's committees were actually made up of women? Because we've seen the photos of this man discussing women's stuff. Nope, that's not the way it goes. So um, if just I will throw a few things to you, a couple of examples. We decided um, two days ago we had the EPSU Women's Committee, Women and Gender Equality Committee. And uh, we also decided to in, in increase a bit our work with our recruitment and organizing team to empower women to organize, empower women to recruit new, um, new women, because it's important that women are at all levels. We need to, to, to have to break down the horizontal and vertical segregation that keeps women to a certain level both in the unions and at the workplace. And I think one of the things that I am most proud to see at EPSU, at EUC, is the leading by example. So when I talk about the code of conduct, the idea is we develop the code of conduct, but we apply the code of conduct to all meetings of the ETUC. So it's not only the women's committee meetings, but it's just it's a gender mainstreaming. That's the way everybody should behave everywhere, in every single occasion. And also... If I come, for example, to another thing that we're working on, so is gender mainstreaming, for example, now we're doing some work on gender and climate to see that we can discuss climate policies, but if we don't look at how those impact women differently, uh, you might have read the book uh, on invisible women to see how 
actually public spaces are designed by man for man, how uh, car crash dummies are made on the size of a man. Sorry, I'm not one meter 80 by 80 kilos. So the same thing would not work for me if I'm in a car crash. Or uh, if I look at, for example, um, an intersectionality is a point we haven't touched upon, how actually black women or lesbian women or women with disabilities are actually impacted more by some of these power structures. Finally, just uh, because you have to get passionate also by technical stuff sometimes to get results, one thing that we're working as unions, uh, EPSU and ETUC, is the Pay Transparency Directive. And within that pay transparency directive that is now in discussion in the parliament, uh, there is one point which I think is, is crucial. is not only equal pay of, for equal work, but it's also equal pay for work of equal value. And how do you define that value? How do you define the job classification and job evaluation? If I go back years... Some of the male-dominated sectors, they have a long list of job professions. So you can enter when you're young, and then you grow up, and you get salary increases because you get more responsibilities, and you have new jobs. Now you, you grow, and you become something else, and then you have senior something, and then you manager something, etc. If you look at women-dominated sector, very often the chain is very short. If I look at social services... In a small structure, well, you're uh, an educator, maybe you're a senior educator, and then, well, that's it. Let's say this, this year and last year was a bit strange and a bit different because, um, because of restrictions, but definitely there are demonstrations, we take the streets, we do initiatives, we do events, we try to sensitize and we try to talk with the delegates, we try to develop materials for our delegates, we promote initiatives, um, there is a number of from social media to to lessons, to training, to taking the streets and making ourselves visible, because that's also what we need to do, to be visible, because we're not, we're not a vulnerable group, we're not a minority, we're not disappearing, we're half of the world population, we are a growing share of the labor market, and we're not getting advantages, we're just taking what women deserve, because that's been taken away from us for so long. That's right. And on this aspect, uh, on this note, we're going to end the program. Thank you, Paula, and thank you, Maria. I'm Boyan Stanislavski, and I hope this uh, conversation was just as fascinating to our uh, viewers and listeners as it was to me. I believe we're going to continue this, uh, elaborating on this topic uh, within the series of the EPSU podcast. Once again, thank you. Keep fighting, stay healthy, and don't forget to go to EPSU's website, epsu.org. See you next time.